visitor with us, I'm thrilled that you're here. If you're not a visitor with us, I'm ecstatic that you're here too. Uh, this is, this is uh, the time in our service when we open the Word of God together and we, uh, we just uh, look at intently at what He has to say to us and how uh, our lives need to be transformed to be brought into accordance with what He has told us uh, in His Word. And we've been looking at, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the um, spiritual disciplines. And maybe that's not a word you're totally familiar with, but let me explain what we were talking about. What we're talking about is really the answer to the question, how does a person grow spiritually? And we all know how to grow physically, right? Uh, Maybe some of us are going to do some of that this afternoon if we eat too many chicken wings, right? Uh, Grow physically. Um, or we see ch- children that do that. If you continue to feed them and uh, at least make semi-regular visits to the doctor, they will continue to grow, right? Uh, and so everybody understands that concept, but how about, how about how do you grow spiritually? How does a person, uh, to put it in terms um, like uh, the Apostle John puts it in, in 1 John, how does a person walk in the Spirit? How do you walk with God? Uh, as the Bible says that Enoch did. Uh, how do you do that? Well, the spiritual disciplines are these, these practices uh, that the Bible describes that help us to do that. And so we've looked at studying your Bible, and we've looked at prayer, and we've looked at confession, and we've looked at celebration, you know, this concept of um, building into, into your life times when you set aside time to celebrate your relationship with God and what he has done for you and what he has promised to you and will yet do in the future and these kinds of things. And so this morning we're going to look at the what I've called the discipline of service. And we're going to be in John chapter 13 and spend a few minutes talking about that. Uh, as you find your way there, uh, let me just tell you a little story. Um, the last 32 years, my dad has built homes in the Indianapolis area. Uh, by this time, I think it runs into the total of several thousand at this point. And uh, at one point, as part of that business, uh, Dan had a lumber company that sold roof trusses and uh, windows and doors and uh, insulation and all kinds of stuff. And uh, as as a young man uh, from about age 17 until, I, until the summer... Um, that I graduated from college, in the summers I would work uh, for my dad at his lumber company. And it was not the most glamorous of jobs, okay? I was the lowest ranking member of the squad. I was the ultimate low man on the totem pole. I spent one entire summer, I kid you not, sweeping up dirt and picking up nails (laughs) out of the, to keep the the tires on the forklift from popping and that kind of stuff. Um, I spent another entire summer building what's called chicken ladder. Now, you may not know what chicken ladder is, um, but if you, have, uh, if you have soffit along the roof line on your house, these little extensions that go out from the roof all the way around from the truss, and you nail the soffit onto that, and then you have kind of a fascia board that runs along it and whatever, Really uh, kind of a neat look architecturally, but really unexciting to build. It's little blocks of two by, f- two by four and other little blocks of one by four material that you nail onto it. And after you've built the first piece, 
as, um, uh, as the song goes from B.B. King, the thrill is gone. <laughs> okay. And I spent eight hours a day for about three and a half months building this stuff. Um, got a really neat scar on my thumb here where I drove one of those 16-penny air nails right through. Uh, pretty exciting. That was the most exciting thing that happened to me all summer. <laughs> okay. I spent, um, I, spent, I spent about five summers working there. And, uh, and it was not my favorite job. Um, because I was the low man on the totem pole, I was everybody's servant, even though my father owned the company. Uh, and that juxtaposition uh, led to some interesting things. And one of the things that it led to was the fact that I got treated like everybody's servant. And everybody else loved that because my dad was the company owner, right? And, uh, and I had to step and fetch it for everybody. And, uh, and I hated that. More than the job, I hated the fact that everybody else got to order me around. Uh, I wasn't real used to that, to be real honest. And, uh, and still not too fond of it, to be frank. <laughs> okay. Um, and I'm guessing that if you're honest, a lot of you would fit in the same kind of category, that you don't like to be in a position where you're the servant, that there's something in you that somebody's saying, do it. Why? Because I said so. That part of you just wells up inside like a tiger and <laughs> wants to just get this person by the throat and say, and who are you, big guy? that I have to listen to what you say and do what you say, right? But nonetheless, the fact is, in the spiritual realm, a servant is precisely what we are all called to be. A servant is what we're called to be. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are not lords and masters, right? We're to be servants. And so... Uh, if we're to follow Jesus, we're to do what he did. And Jesus willingly forsook all of the blessings and the benefits of being God, as Philippians says, and took on the nature of a what? Servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even to death on a cross. Right? And we are called to follow a man who died on a cross, not for what he did, but for what we did. And he was our servant in that sense. And so we, as followers of his, are to be servants as well. So, um, by the way, I think the reason this is important for us to practice is not just because Jesus tells us this is a good idea, and not just because we love him and we want to follow him, but because it actually has benefits for us. Okay? And one of the benefits is that, the, is that as I serve other people, the part of me that bristles at being treated like a servant, the prideful part of me, starts to die a little bit at a time, the more that I do it. And that's a very healthy thing. That the part of you that says, no one's going to tell me what to do, needs killed off. If you're going to really enjoy all that God has for you in life. 
And so this is a good thing, not just because it benefits us, um, not just because Jesus commands it, but because we love him and we want to be like him. And if we're going to be like him and we're going to show our love for him, we're going to have to do the kind of things that he did to put to death the part of us that resists what God has called us to. So I want to look at uh, John chapter 13, at what is, apart from the crucifixion, the ultimate example of, ser- of service uh, by Jesus that we have in the New Testament. Okay? Uh, now this is John chapter 13, beginning of verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Judas, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it round his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now look back at verse 1 for a minute. I think John is giving us here a clue as to the setting. Okay, If you, look, if you read your book of John, um, the first 12 chapters of John have to do with Jesus' ministry. The last chunk from here on has to do with Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, basically, the first 12 chapters are a long introduction to John's desire to tell Jesus' passion story. And John is concerned that we understand when this is happening. And he says, just before the Passover feast, the meal they're about to eat is Passover. And they're all gathered together. 
and in this place, uh, they're, they're, they're about to eat this meal, and nobody has thought to provide any water or a towel or anything to clean up their feet with. And that's a problem because um, this is a this is a at a time when there are a lot of livestock of various types running around. The streets are dirty, uh, and you wear sandals or go barefoot if you don't have money for sandals. So you can imagine the combination of those elements all together mean that your feet are funky most of the time. And so whenever you would go into someone's house, you would wash your feet, or, or they would provide, if they were wealthy, a servant who would wash your feet for you. Or sometimes, if the, if the host was especially gracious, he would wash your feet, or his wife would. But normally speaking, you would provide at least a basin of water so that everybody could clean the funk off, you know, and maybe a putty knife, too, to scrape the big chunks, all right? But anyway, you, you, would, you would normally, you would clean up your feet, John says it's just before the Passover, and so, uh, and Jesus knows that his hour had come. Um, in other words, he knows the crucifixion is about to happen. He was aware of that. He knew the day was coming near, and that it was going to be this Passover. There are three Passovers that Jesus celebrates in the Gospels, and this is the third and last one. And it says he knows he's going out of this world to the Father and that he knows that he has loved his own. These, these guys that have followed him, he's going to show them now the full extent of his love. Okay, it says he loved them uh, to the end. In other words, all the way to the end of his life is how the, the, the grammar there reads. All the way to the end of his life. And Jesus is about to wash his disciples and this is an act, I think, that prefigures and that John is explicitly trying to tie together with what's about to happen. That Jesus is going to humble himself in this way, and it's an, it's, a, it's an example of the kind of humbling that's about to happen with the crucifixion later. And he wants us to draw a link between those two things. And... Uh, and we'll get more onto that in a minute. But we want to see how Jesus demonstrates his love. In verse 2, it says that during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, that's interesting. In fact, more interesting than what the text shows because it's ambiguous in the, in the original text there whose heart uh, the thought of betraying Jesus has been put into, whether it's the devil's heart or Judas's heart. Now, my Bible, and probably yours too, makes it clear that it's Judas' heart. But I think John leaves it ambiguous specifically because he wants us to see that, that the devil and Judas were working together on the same thought. We need to betray Jesus to death. And knowing that is the betrayal is coming, knowing that the crucifixion is tomorrow, knowing who the betrayer is, Jesus does what he's about to do. Verse 3, you get this. 
Verse 3, Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hands. In other words, Jesus has all authority, right? Jesus knows that he is God and that he has unlimited power, right? Sometimes people, people write and they speak as if Jesus sort of didn't, went through life not realizing he was God. Like it snuck up on him someday, you know. <gasps> Shazam, I'm God, you know. Uh, and then he started preaching that, all right. That's not what happened. John makes it clear here. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. In other words, Jesus knows that he's God. And he knows that the devil has put it into Judas' heart to betray him. Um, he knows that he's that he'd come from God and that he's going back to God. Now think about that for a minute. You know that there's a traitor in your midst. You know who it is. That the person is going to betray you to crucifixion and death. And, bonus, you have unlimited power. Now I don't know about you, but what are you going to? What am I? What am I going to do? <laughs> okay. I wonder how that guy would look inside out, you know? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Um, it's, that's, that's, by the way, one of the multitude of good reasons that I am not God, okay? Um, and why it's a good thing, <laughs> right? Um, because I, different than Jesus, am not fully holy in all of my desires and not completely loving in all of my responses all the time. But here sits this guy at dinner with you, a guy who has followed you around for three years, who has shared every meal and most every waking moment with you, and has spent a lot of nights sleeping in the same room with you for the last three years of your life. And one of these guys that you are friends with, that you have taught, that you have eaten with, slept with, spent time with, is going to betray you to death by crucifixion the following day. And you know who it is. And you have unlimited power. And instead of using that unlimited power to punish that guy for what he is thinking about doing, this is what you do. You get up from the table. You take off your robe, your outer garment. Okay, You had two things that you wore. You, know, you had kind of an inner robe with sleeves, and then an outer robe that went over it. And Jesus takes off the outer one, so he's just got kind of on this, basically, what we would think of as like a nightgown kind of a thing. And he takes a towel, and he wraps that around his waist. And by the way, he's dressed at this point like a servant. And he then gets down, he gets a basin of water, and he gets down on his knees dressed like a servant, and does the thing that the lowest servant would do. You know, a Jew was not supposed to become a slave, particularly a Jewish man, was not to be a slave, ever. But if he happened to become a slave, there was a limitation on what he could sell himself into slavery to do. And washing feet was not on that list. It's the lowest ranking slave.
because you're in charge of cleaning the filth off of people's feet. And Jesus gets his basin of water and his towel and he starts scrubbing feet. And drying them off with a towel around his waist. And most everybody at the table just sits there in sort of shocked and embarrassed silence. Just like you and I would. Because before this, the disciples have been arguing on the way about which one of them is the greatest. <laughs> no, I'm better than you. <laughs> you know? Um, you know? I mean, you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. You know, that kind of conversation they're having. And I'm going to be much greater in the kingdom of heaven than you. And then they get to the, get to the feast. And nobody's humble enough to even go get a pan of water for everybody else. And so they just sit there with their funk on their feet. And Jesus dresses like a servant and starts washing. And everybody just sits there. And then Peter, because he's kind of the, the person that you have in any group of friends who always says what everybody else is thinking, okay, <laughs> speaks up. And he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I love Peter, okay? I, I, um, I, ha- I have a tendency to be like Peter sometimes, you know, open mouth, insert foot, right? And Peter does this frequently, and he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Because he can't fathom that Jesus, the one he regards as his Lord, his master, is going to do what he's doing. And Jesus' reaction is interesting. He says, Peter, essentially, let me, let me bring it into, into modern English here. Peter, right now you don't understand, but later you'll understand. You'll get it. Okay? Okay? Um, and Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. not going to happen. I'm not going to allow the one I regard as Lord and teacher to wash my feet. That is too low for you, Jesus. You can't do that. And Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, then you can't have any part with me. And Peter says, well, if it's going to be like that, hold on. Uh, why don't you wash my head and wash my hands too? You know, I mean, he's kind of got irrational exuberance, all right? Um, you know, if we're, if we're going to be washing stuff, let's wash it all. And, um, and Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, I want you to see something here in this. Jesus is drawing a parallel between physical washing and spiritual cleansing. Okay? And he's talking about, if you've had a bath, what he means is, is that you are what the Bible refers to as justified. That you have placed your faith in Jesus and that as a result of that, you have had a complete cleansing. 
that God no longer counts your sin against you. But, Jesus would say, you need to wash the dirty parts of you on a regular basis. In other words, you have a relationship with God, and so you are cleansed in the ultimate sense from your sin. But in order to have fellowship with God day to day, you need to confess and be washed. You've had a bath, but you need to wash your feet, Peter. And so it's not that you get saved again every time that you sin and you repent. It's that you confess your sin to God and that he washes you. And that the basis of both cleansings, by the way, is Jesus. And later we're going to see through John um, that it's not washing with water that makes the difference. It's the blood of Jesus appropriated to you and to me that makes the difference. Because how many of the disciples got washed? All of them. How many got cleansed? Only 11 of them. And notice Jesus' love here. Okay, This is the second time, and there's going to be one more. This is the second time that John mentions there's a betrayer in the midst. And what he's trying to do is draw a huge contrast between what Jesus is doing and the fact that there is a traitor among them. And I don't want you to miss that. Okay, He's trying to emphasize the fact that Jesus is aware of what he's doing, even for the guy who is going to betray him to death. And it's as if Jesus is giving him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to change his mind. It's not that Jesus would not have gone to the cross if Judas had not been the betrayer. But we always have a choice as to whether we're going to pursue our sin or not. And he's saying, Judas, I love you. I love you even enough to wash your feet, even knowing that you've decided to betray me. And he's giving him one more opportunity to be restored. One other thing I want you to see in this passage is that there is no external ritual that cleanses a person. There is no external ritual that cleanses a person. And if, it, if, if, it, if an external ritual could cleanse a person from their sin, then surely one performed by Jesus could get the job done, right? But even though Jesus is washing Judas' feet, Judas is not cleansed. He's only washed. Right? He just got his feet wet. His soul is unchanged. And he has not ever had the bath that Jesus is talking about, where his sin nature is not counted against him, and where he needs to restore daily his fellowship with God through confession, through the washing of the dirty parts, his feet. Okay? Does everybody understand where I'm coming from here? All right. Um. Uh, no religious ritual has real and lasting value, even if it's performed by Jesus. 
it's a matter of the heart, not of the act performed, right? Now, Jesus says here, um, verse 12, and, and you know, this is one of the reasons, by the way, that I'm convinced the Bible is true. Um, one of many reasons, but this is one. The disciples are the guys who wrote the Bible, right? John is at the table, and yet he's the, later the gospel writer. And Jesus, and and yet these guys always come off stupid. Okay, if you're writing a story that you're making up, you don't normally paint yourself as an idiot, um, <laughs> right? Um, and yet John, who's the gospel writer, is sitting at the table, and he makes it clear that none of them understand what's going on. So this isn't invented history. This is what actually happened. He says, when he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? And they all probably sat there and went, it was kind of a dial tone, you know, right there. And, um, and he, says, he says, let me explain. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. He is their teacher, and he is their Lord. Uh, if I then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Um, there are three things that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. And by extension, because we are followers of Jesus in modern times, that he's trying to teach us. These are written for our benefit, right? Disciples lived through it. Why did they write it down? So that we could get it, right? Uh, number one, he's trying to teach us about the extent of God's love. He says, I've given you an example. What am I giving you an example of? Well, he's trying to give us an example of God's love. Because later on here he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. In other words, I know which ones of you are saved. Which ones of you have had your sins forgiven. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He says, I'm telling you this so that when, when it happens that I get betrayed, you'll know that I am the one who is to come, because I told you in advance what was going to happen. Um, this is the third mention that there's a traitor here. And if you keep reading down through chapter 13, you see that Jesus knows who it is because he tells Judas, what you're about to go do, do quickly. Get at it, son. You're going to betray me? Go for it. Part of God's plan. This is the third mention in these 17 verses. How much does God love us? Enough that even the betrayer is loved and cared for and humbly served. Even those and you're going to see, if you read John, you're going to see this later. How does Jesus pray? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this prefigures that event. He says, how much does God love you? Enough that even those who are traitors 
And they're all traitors, by the way, to a lesser extent than Judas. Because what happens when Jesus gets arrested? What do they do? Run like scared rabbits. Okay. Uh, Peter, you got to give him some credit because he actually follows along. But then when he gets in the situation amongst everybody, he denies that he even knows who Jesus is. Never met the man, don't know anything about him. <laughs> Just happened to be here. <laughs> okay. Says that twice. The last time he uh, calls down a curse on himself. Starts cussing about the fact that he doesn't know Jesus. Okay? They all betray Jesus. And yet he loves them all. Serves them all. How much does God love us? To the very end. Okay? Uh, Number two, I think Jesus is trying to teach a lesson about spiritual cleansing. That it's necessary to be washed to be cleansed initially, to be justified, to use Paul's term, that our sin and our sin nature is not counted against us. Why? Because of a washing that we have had, not by water, but by the blood of Jesus. And that later we maintain that fellowship by washing, in a sense, the dirty parts of us off. How do we have the right to do that? By the blood of Jesus. And the water symbolizes the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, which both saves us and restores us to fellowship with God on a day to day basis. Okay? But there's a third important lesson I think Jesus is teaching, and that is a lesson about servanthood. And he says, he's saying this if I, who am God, can do the most humble act of service, of washing filthy feet, then how can, and if I can perform even greater than that, the most humiliating death that there is is imaginable, to be hung naked on a cross and crucified. As God, if I can do that, so that you, rebels and traitors and sinners, and those who reject God and his will for your life can enter into relationship with me by faith and be not only restored, but welcomed into the presence of God's own family and welcomed into the presence of God for all eternity. If I'm willing to do that for you, surely you who are merely humans can also serve one another. Surely, if Jesus can be that self-sacrificial, then we can be that self-sacrificial, right? Now, Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So how do you do this? Let me suggest a couple of things. Um, number one, I'd like to suggest that you might find it really interesting and even spiritually maturing to find someone that you are close to and wash their feet for them. Literally, wash their feet. Uh, maybe you have a spouse for which you'd be willing to do this. 
Uh, maybe you have a close spiritual friend of the same sex that you'd be willing to do this for. And you can experience, if you do this, I'll guarantee you this. If you do this, you'll have this experience. You'll have, first of all, a recognition of how humbling it is to wash somebody else's feet. But here's the other experience you'll have. You'll have the one like Peter. Uh-uh, baby. <laughs> not my feet. You're not doing that. Okay? I don't want you to do that. And it's humbling not only to wash feet, but to have them washed. To come to Jesus and recognize I'm dirty. I need to have my feet washed. is a humbling act. And to admit, in a sense, to someone close to you as a way of kind of recapturing this experience, my feet are dirty, they need washed, is also a humbling thing. And I think it would be interesting for you to have this experience and to see how it affects you. And to imagine that instead of your spouse or the close friend, that this is Jesus doing this for you. And maybe you want to do this in the context of uh, if you've had some relational difficulties with one another, to do this as a way of reconciling yourselves one to another and admitting your sin and saying, you know, hey, I screwed up. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And take turns doing this, okay? Um, Follow up with some prayer time. And ask God to to show you how you can better serve and encourage one another. Tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I'll do it if you do it. (laughs) Okay? Let me know when you did it. And I'll do it if you do it. Right? Um, Number two, ask your spouse or your ministry team leader or ask the elders. Um, how can I serve you today? Now, that's a dangerous question. All right? How can I serve you with my gifts today? Now, at the risk of totally embarrassing my wife, I'll tell you that she does this for me sometimes. She'll come to me and say, at the beginning of the day, you know, she's usually up at like 4.30, okay, uh, some hour at which I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or not, okay? Uh, she's usually up doing her Bible study, and she'll come to me, and she'll, after I have awakened at some, some time you know, around when the sun does, um, uh, she'll come to me sometimes, and she'll say to me, Honey, how can I serve you today? Or if you're on a ministry team, ask your ministry team leader, you know, how can I serve you today? Or if you're not on a ministry team, come to me or Jim or, or, or one of the elders and ask how you can serve. How can I serve you and how can I serve the church today? What are some of the needs that you guys have? Or um, recognize this. These are some needy times. We have a lot of people in our community out of work. We have a lot of people struggling to just to get by. Uh, There are even people in our own congregation that are in that situation. And find somebody that you can serve and meet their need. 
And I think it's best if you do so anonymously so that not even your left hand knows what your right hand is doing. Right? Uh, serve somebody. Find a way to meet a need. Uh, number four, use your spiritual gifts. Use your spiritual gifts. You know, one man said the church a lot of times is like going to a football game. You know, since there's a football game on today, I think that's maybe a good analogy. You've got 22 guys on the field uh, desperate, you know, who are desperately in need of rest and 60,000 people in the stands uh, desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And sometimes in the church it's like that, or at least it feels like that, you know, that there's a lot of people serving but that you're not one of them. And a lot of times people will, will use this as the excuse. Well, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Now, uh, let me make you two promises. Number one, in a couple of weeks, we're going to clarify that. Okay? We're going to get to a couple of weeks on spiritual gifts and talk about these gifts that God has given each person uh, for the work of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Okay? Um, we're going to talk about that. But let me also tell you, tell you this. If you start serving in some capacity, you will quickly discover what your gift is. Because whatever you enjoy doing is probably your gift. Okay? Um, so find a place to serve with your spiritual gift. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is and you really are curious and not just using that as an excuse for doing nothing, um, come see me and we'll help you discover that or talk to a close spiritual friend that you have who can say, you know, hey, I've seen you do this and you really seem to enjoy that and be blessed in it. So do, why don't you do that? You know, I know what Marty Davis's spiritual gift is. It's evangelism, Okay. Uh, I know what Lynn Ferguson's is. It's encouragement. Okay? I know what a bunch of people's is because I've watched them. Okay? My wife, administration. She will organize you to the day you die. <laughs> okay? Karen loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> All right? <laughs> um, okay? She does. Okay? Mine is in preaching and in teaching. Okay, at least I think so. Some of you may not agree. All right, but, um, but we're going to talk about that. Use your spiritual gift. They're given so that you might serve the body of Christ. Because we're, we're part of a family, we're on the same team, and every week our, our job is to put our hands in the middle and to win or die for Jesus Christ. Okay? And so find a way to serve. Jesus served us and continues to serve us, by the way, as our high priest and intercessor before the throne of God. And so how can we do less than to serve him who has given us such great self-sacrificial love and service? Right? Let's pray.